Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the knowledge that as we turn to your word, it speaks, for your word is alive, it's active, living. Father, it transforms us, not merely informs us, but it transforms us from dead to life, from infancy to maturity in Christ. Father, in your word, we encounter you all sufficiently that we might know you, be in relationship with you, fulfill your purpose for us, which is to bring you glory above all things. And Father, in so doing, discover our greatest joy. Find our lives and the appetites therein satisfied inexplicably for we know we will find no satisfaction anywhere else fathers the apostle Peter said where would we go for you alone have the words of eternal life father we know this to be true and I pray now as we turn to this word that you would speak to us father let the words that we hear be what you desire we hear so that we might be made more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them with me to the book of First Kings, surprise, chapter 19. If you're with us, if you're visiting, we've been in First Kings for a while. We're in chapter 19 this morning. First Kings 19 and find verse 9. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. And when we ended our time together last week, we left the prophet Elijah cowering in a cave. Following divine provision, the prophet fled to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the journey took 40 days. At its close, we read, he went into a cave and spent the night. Exhausted, hungry, defeated, Elijah was ready to die. And We've previously seen how prior to the two meals God provided, he left his servant, that is Elijah, had left his servant in Beersheba, gone a day's journey into the desert, climbed under a broom tree and declared, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Forty days later, having traveled to Horeb in the strength provided by the Lord, he enters a cave and he crashes. Have you ever found yourself in a place like the prophet? Cold, dark, place where you felt like ending it all, all, where all you felt was this failure. You were no better than your ancestors. Now, there may have been a time when your outlook was bright. You felt as if you had a great deal to offer the world. You were smart, insightful, energetic, engaging. The world better look out because all of its ills were about to be addressed by you. But then things began to change. Relationships that you found so exciting became frustrating. Opportunities became obstacles. Successes turned to failures. Friends to enemies and family. (laughs) Well, family were just a painful reminder that you weren't as special as you thought. Things really weren't all that different. In fact, as far as you could see, you hadn't contributed anything. And now, alone and dejected, the question haunting your mind was, what's the point? What's the point of going on? You ever found yourself in a place like the prophet? You know, it's amazing how often 
such dark caves come close on the heels of bright celebrations. How regularly deep valleys follow the lofty heights of mountaintops. Elijah hadn't been off of Mount Carmel for 24 hours before he got wind of Jezebel's warning. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of the slaughtered prophets of Baal. The heights of Carmel were marked by crowds and the heat of divine fire followed by refreshing rain became the lonely depths and eerie silence of a dark mountain cave. Have you ever found yourself feeling as Elijah surely did, all alone, worthless, as if all that you've done to this point has just been a waste of time, and, and who you are is of absolutely no consequence. No one would even miss me if I was gone. Have you ever felt this way? You know, possibly you feel this way today to one degree or another. You know, if, I, if we're honest, I believe that we have all felt like the prophet at some point. And if you haven't, just give life time. Just give life time. And the word that I believe God would have for us all today reminds us of the source of our strength, reminds us of the source of our purpose, and the source of our significance in the midst of life's storms. And so, with that said, would you follow along as I read our text this morning? 1 Kings 19 and verse 9. The scriptures declare, Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elijah will put to, or Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. May God bless the public reading of his word. Church, the first thing that I'd like us to consider from what we've just read is the Lord's question 
the Lord's questions. Recorded in the second half of verse 9 where we read, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And this is how the NIV renders verse 9. However, the Holman begins similarly. Then the word of the Lord came to him. But then it includes something conspicuously absent from the NIV translation. It's the phrase, and he said to him. And so the Holman reads in entirety, Then the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And the ESV, if you have an ESV translation, is like the Holman, only it begins, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Normally, the NIV is an adequate translation, but unfortunately in this case, it's chosen to condense several key terms, which while not changing the overall meaning of this passage in, in any way, it does obscure what I believe are some points of spiritual significance. And so, so let me explain. First of all, the term behold, as it's rendered in the ESV, if you have the ESV, or then, as it's offered by the Holman. But I like behold better because it, it stands out. Here in the cave at Horeb, we are told, and behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now, we know that this is not the first time that the Lord has spoken to his prophet. We encountered similar, this same phenomenon expressed in similar phrasing back in chapter 17, verse 2, and along with verse 8, again in chapter 18 and verse 1. However, here in chapter 19, verse 9, there is a, there's a difference. This term, behold, and this word is notably absent from each of the previous references because I believe what follows is special. This instance is different, as one writer expressed it. This is the Spirit's intimation here that something extraordinary is before us. So the question that naturally follows then is, what what could possibly be more extraordinary than receiving a word from the Lord? And then the answer is provided for us in the second phrase that's glaringly absent from our NIV. And that is, and he said to him, what we have here in chapter 19 is more than just the reception of a divine message. This, this is the record of a divine meeting with the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word. The fact that the biblical writer specifically expressed the delivery of this message in the language of the third person when it was omitted from the previous instances reveals the presence of one who was otherwise absent. And you also notice the absence of any reference in this verse to the angel of the Lord, who's named earlier in verse 5 as well as verse 7. And so if this had been merely another angelic visitor, then surely the writer would have said so, but they don't. And so, church, I believe this is just one of many Old Testament references that reveal God's triune nature. And, church, if you think about this, this is a, a beautiful thought. The prophet of God having fled for his life, finds himself alone in a cave, depressed, distressed, exhausted, when whom should he encounter but God the Son, the one whom the Apostle John tells us was God in the beginning, and he was God, the Word through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so as a man despairing of life in a cave, whom should Elijah encounter? but the one in whom is life. Hiding alone in the darkness of this cave, whom should the prophet encounter but the one whose life was the light of men, a light that shines in the what? 
darkness? Do you face a future marked by fear for life? Days that are dark and seemingly without hope. Have you encountered God the Son? We call him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Do you know it? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't this an odd word to receive from the Lord? To this point, everything that Elijah has heard has come in the form of commands. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow to supply you with food. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, Elijah hears, what are you doing here? It's a question, and one that we can immediately disregard as being asked out of ignorance of the answer. And this word from the Lord isn't an attempt to ascertain how Elijah came to be in this cave, for God is omniscient. He knows everything. Our God is everywhere. He's all-powerful. Thus, God's purpose in asking this question isn't to uncover anything that he doesn't already know, but rather to rebuke his prophet and draw his attention to his failings. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the benefit of hearing God's intonation in this question, so we can't know exactly what was emphasized, but I believe we can consider each element individually that we might better appreciate God's work of conviction here. And so consider first the question asked in this way. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And the emphasis upon the what draws our attention to the rightness or wrongness of the presence or the prophet's presence in the cave. And as as the last of God's prophets, Elijah's flight to Horeb seems a strange act of self-preservation. And so let me explain. Now, if you recall from last week, upon receiving Jezebel's threat, Elijah was afraid for his life, and he ran away. Now, when one runs for their life, they do so as to preserve it, right? And yet what we find is that Elijah, or Elijah runs to Beersheba, which, and I didn't mention this last week, but I believe it's pertinent here, but Beersheba was in Judah. And the king of Judah was Jehoshaphat, whose son had, according to 2 Kings 8.18, married a daughter of, guess who? Ahab. And the two houses, that is the house of Ahab and the house of Jehoshaphat, were so closely tied that we read later on in 1 Kings 22 
when Ahab went to war to reclaim Ramoth-Gilead, he invited Jehoshaphat to join him. And the king of Judah replied, I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. And so Beersheba was not a place of sanctuary for a prophet on the run, which is why Elijah goes a day's journey into the desert. But it's there that we encounter this paradox. The prophet who is fleeing for his life, there asks the Lord to do what? Take his life. Why? Why, if you're trying to save yourself, do you moments later want to end it all? And friends, I believe by placing the emphasis upon this first term, what? We see God drawing Elijah's attention to the inconsistency of his behavior to this point. Did did he want to die or live? What was he doing in this case? And friends, have you ever found yourself fighting against similar inconsistencies? Moments where you don't know whether you want to laugh or cry, to fight or to flee. You feel so alone, and yet you cannot stand the thought of company. You feel so desperate for help, but when others offer it, you can't accept it. You feel the crushing weight of guilt, and yet you can't bring yourself to apologize. You want to save your life at all costs, but the life that you're attempting to save doesn't appear to be worth living. I believe God wanted Elijah to see just how foolish his flight had been. And there's a second way in which this question may be expressed, and that is, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? When with the emphasis placed upon you, I believe we see God bringing clarity to the heart of the problem, which was the prophet's heart. Elijah had feared. Elijah had fled. Elijah had failed. It wasn't Ahab's fault or or his wife Jezebel. Elijah couldn't point his finger at Baal or any one of his prophets as being the cause of his freak out. And and in hearing the emphasis upon you, Elijah knew, as, as had Job before him, that he had to answer for his own actions. And I, I reference Job here because, as you may recall, his life was one marked by misery and suffering at the hand of Satan. And he was further tormented by those who should have tended to his needs. Three friends who kept urging him to confess. And finally, Job cries out to God, demanding an accounting, whereupon God, much as he does here in our text, speaks, but not with a question, or not with a command, but rather in the form of a question. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I'm going to question you, and you are going to answer me. What are you doing here, Elijah? Man, church, like Elijah, I I believe that we all need to be roused from our petty finger-pointing, blame-casting, guilt-dodging to hear what are you doing here? And we may only answer that question for ourselves. Our actions cannot be attributed or blamed on anyone else, no matter how frustrating or unfair your life may seem. We will all be held accountable for what we have done. And so this means, friends, in light of faith, that our faith in Christ has to be our own. We can't and we do not experience salvation because of our parents or our friends. Now, we are most definitely blessed, we who have Christian godly parents and family that have lived the gospel before us, prayed faithfully that we might experience and 
come to life in Christ, but their faith will not save us. One day we will all be made to account for our own actions. Elijah heard, what are you doing here? But then there's a third way to hear this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And in contrast to the previous two expressions, I believe this emphasis drew the prophet's attention to the distinctions between all that had occurred on Mount Carmel and now on, in this cave on Mount Horeb. On Mount Carmel, Elijah had confronted the people of God with their sin, their indecision. He challenged them then to choose. He mocked the priests of Baal and then interceded for the people requesting God accept the sacrifice for their sin. Yet here on Mount Horeb, Elijah was cowering in a cave. Elijah was wavering in his faith. Elijah was making a mockery of God's person, power, and provision. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing here today? As followers of the living God who is eternal, infinite, and unchanging in his power and perfection, his goodness and glory, his wisdom, justice, and truth, do you question his character? Do you doubt his promises? Do you speak to him only out of necessity and need? Do you worship him that he, you might earn points or, or receive some special blessing? But what about Christ's sobering words? If you love me, you will obey me. Or his commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Do we do all for the glory of God that we might enjoy him more? What are you doing here? And then a final emphasis. What are you doing here, Elijah? And at that point, I believe Elijah's weary eyes were lifted to his immediate location. Rather than being surrounded by God's people whom he was called to serve, Elijah was all alone. Rather than being in the land God had promised to his people Israel, Elijah found himself in the wilderness. Elijah was in self-imposed exile, and God drew his attention to it. And friends, don't we often find ourselves in a similar place? When we've fallen into sin, or been offended, whether it's active or, or passive, and we've involved ourselves in the process, we often distance ourselves from all reminders of, of, of the God that we've erred against and the sin that's been committed. We stop gathering with others because, because of the sense of conviction that we feel when we're with others. We stop praying because we don't feel that we have any kind of gravitas with God. We can't ask for anything because we're unworthy. And we stop reading the Bible because we don't want to be reminded of our shortcomings. The cave in which Elijah found himself was a long, lonely journey from Israel. And the Lord, I believe, wanted him to know it. What are you doing here, Elijah? So we've looked together at the Lord's question. Now let's consider the prophet's reply. The prophet's reply. Why don't you look back with me to our text in verse 10. Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Church, how telling is Elijah's first sentence? I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Does this sound familiar? 
Do you recall a number of weeks ago when we studied Elijah's encounter with Obadiah, Ahab's chief of staff? After God sent Elijah to present himself to Ahab, the first person that he met was who? Obadiah. It was a man, a devout follower of Yahweh. But when asked by the prophet to go and tell your master that Elijah is here, he freaked out, didn't he? He freaked out and he said, what have I done wrong that you're handing me over to Ahab to be put to death? If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will surely kill me. Yet, I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Translation, I've been very zealous for the Lord. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves. Translation, here's proof, brother. Here is proof of my zeal for the Lord God Almighty. Elijah's response sounds uncannily like that of Obadiah's, doesn't it? And the similarities are even more startling when you consider the title that Elijah gives for God. The Lord God Almighty. This is the same title that Elijah gave to Obadiah as grounds for confidence in his word. And yet what follows here in our text for Elijah is a description not of confidence in God's character, but one of the deplorable conditions facing his prophet. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now, now they're trying to kill me too. And if you set aside for just a moment the misleading manner in which Elijah states the obvious, with regards to the sin of God's people, if you set that aside for just a moment, how odd is the prophet's final phrase? Now they're trying to kill me too. Hasn't this man been in hiding for over three and a half years because of Ahab's desire to kill him? Has he just forgotten the raven's food by which he was sustained at the Kareth Ravine? Have his meals with that Sidonian widow and her son whom God raised from the dead slip from his mind? Why does, why does Elijah say, now they're trying to kill me too? And church, I believe the answer is inextricably linked to the human condition. In other words, Elijah was not a superman. That's it as a man, a man who's possessed of inerrant faith or spiritual ability. Rather, he was an instrument in God's hand, a man just like any other, prone to weakness, prone to sin and fear. Elijah, just like Peter later, displayed some moments of, of amazing faith, incredible faith. And he followed those with periods of denial. In the throes of his depression, Elijah was consumed with himself. And his sinful nature was concerned with none but himself. And friends, we, we all, like the prophet, have a proclivity to sin. We are quick to look out for number one, to pursue goals that serve our own ends and engage in activities that guarantee the safety of, well, the, sa the safety of me. And in such moments of self-serving, self-gratifying, self-preserving endeavor, we are incapable of seeing life saved through the lens of self. Even though Elijah had witnessed God raise the dead, he feared for his life. Even though he'd seen Yahweh consume rocks with his fire, he was afraid of Ahab's wife. Captive in this cave of self-pity, Elijah was in need of help. Do you feel like Elijah today? Is your life threatened by an enemy seeking to rob you of 
of everything you hold dear? Are you filled with fear at the thought of, of the future? The uncertainty of the present or haunted by guilt from the past? We've looked at the Lord's question, the prophet's response. Now I want you to see with me the Lord's command. The Lord's command. In verse 11, we read, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Church, do you notice how the Lord responds to Elijah's words? He doesn't acknowledge the reality of Israel's sin or commiserate with his prophet over their despicable apostasy. He doesn't empathize with Elijah sharing his own disappointment over Ahab's failure or comfort his prophet. In light of the threats against his life, the Lord simply directs Elijah to enter his presence. And as Elijah prepares to obey, he's confronted by three sensory shocking, faith-renewing, spirit convicting events, a wind that totally destroys rocks by its power, and an earthquake that shakes the very ground upon which the prophet stood, followed by a fire whose intensity would have made Elijah retreat for fear of being consumed. And yet, the Lord was in none of them. Why? Why do you think that was? I believe that God in His grace knowing the frailty of his prophet, worked in such a way as to touch all parts of the man's person. His mind, his body, and his soul. The sight, the sound, the feel of the wind, the earthquake and fire would have revived Elijah's wavering faith, just as the fire and rain on Mount Carmel had brought revival to God's people. And it's in ways similar to those experienced by the apostles of God the Son, who is Jesus, when they were making their way across the Sea of Galilee many, many years later. And they experienced a storm, if you recall, that made them fear for their very lives. Every sense of every man in that boat was touched by the storm. And yet Jesus was doing what? Sacked out. Man was sawing logs. And the disciples frantically woke him up, begging him, please, Lord, say this. At which point Jesus stood up and said, quiet. Be still. And the wind died down. And it was completely calm. And when the gentle whisper came, Elijah heard it. And he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And he heard a voice which said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question as was asked to him before. And he responds with the same words as before. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now 
they're trying to kill me too. Elijah doesn't change his story, doesn't make up another, simply restates his previous words. And I believe that in so doing, we see the prophet's final recognition of his failure. The display of God's power had just destroyed all grounds for fear. And so now, confronted once again in the quiet and in the still, in the gracious presence of the Lord God Almighty, Elijah repeats his earlier response that he might revel in just how foolish it sounds. Elijah's response here, again, it reminds me of Job, who when he was confronted by God, declared, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? We could insert here. You asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes. Elijah could say, my whole person has experienced you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I believe Elijah's repentance is implicit in his restating of his initial response, as is God's forgiveness, as he then responds once again, without ever addressing the concerns of his prophet, but he simply provides him with a new directive. It's as if the Lord says, good, and we got that out of the way, get back to work. And friends, I don't know what the outlook of your life is this morning, whether you may be feeling like the prophet all alone, exhausted as all of your efforts seem to have come to nothing, disappointed potentially as everybody that you've been trying to to influence with the gospel seemingly has rejected it in you, and now you felt needing to tuck tail and run. Maybe you feel like you're just ready to give up. What's the point? You just can't do it. Now, it could be right now that your life reflects Elijah's in more ways than you feel comfortable admitting. And if this is If this is so, I pray this morning that we have heard together God's question directed to us. What are you doing here? I pray that we've been reminded of the power of our God who controls the wind and the waves and yet who still meets us in the quiet. I pray that we have heard God the Son who is Jesus speak to us and that we've been revived. Now we're ready to head back out with new marching orders, clear in our minds. Church, as disciples of Jesus, our strength comes from Christ. Our purpose is to glorify Christ. And our significance is that we belong to Christ. Our strength comes from Christ. Our purpose is to glorify Christ. Our significance is that we are Christ. I hope and pray that this is true of your life today, such that as we leave this place, we go in the knowledge that we go with His hand over us, His Spirit within us, so that we might lead others to see the joy that is ours 
and be drawn to ask, why? What have you got that I don't? Because there's something different about your life. Elijah left Horeb and went and did all that God had directed. He saw, was reminded of his failure, and reinvigorated by God's Spirit. May we be as Elijah was. Would you pray as we close? Father, thank you that you fill us with your power. Father, we don't live life in our own strength. And these aren't mere platitudes, Father. These are truths drawn from your, your word. Lord, and there are times in which our lives feel more than we can handle. The circumstances that we're dealing with seem more than we can bear. And yet your word provides us comfort in those moments. Not that what we're experiencing isn't life, but rather that in the midst of those storms, those trials, those, those burdens, you strengthen us. You give us the ability to endure, knowing that our endurance will lead us to perfection in Christ. Father, we, like James, want to count it all joy when we go through various trials. Lord, and I know that many here this morning are facing that very thing, trials of various kinds, difficulties. Some are known, some are unknown to the body, but Father, they are no less real. Lord, and there are some, I would believe this morning, who, who do not have the hope that we share. We cannot see how we could count a trial as joy. All it seems to do is, is to, to detract from my life's purpose of experiencing and finding happiness. Father, I pray this morning that they have heard the beauty of your gospel. Lord, as we look to the life of Elijah, we don't desire to emulate Elijah. For Elijah was just like us, a man that you used in amazing ways, but a man and nothing more. And yet, Father, we look at Elijah, and in the story of Scripture, we are, we are shown a prophet who served at your behest, fulfilling your purpose for him, but one who, unable to reconcile your people, pointed forwards to the promised prophet, God the Son, Jesus, who would come and unlike Elijah, wouldn't fail, but would work perfectly your plan, dying in our place on a cross so that whoever believes in him might have life. Father, thank you for what we see in the life of Elijah. Thank you for the forgiveness that we see you give. And Father, may we find that same forgiveness this day. May we hear just how foolish so many of the excuses that we offer are. Just as with that little styrofoam cup. Father, we have to answer for our own actions. We can't point fingers, cast blame. Father, we have to realize that we are fallen, sinful. But that's why you sent Jesus. God, thank you for your plan. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.